BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Hey, American Hauntings listeners, it's Troy. Don't have enough American Hauntings in your life? Yeah, me either. But in your case, you're not chained to your desk being forced to create content for Cody. You get to listen by choice. So why not check out our other podcast? As a Patreon supporter, you can get a new alternative podcast episode every week. And right now, we're in the middle of our third season. Sinister, the true story of H.H. Holmes. You know, the serial killer, builder of the legendary murder castle, and the devil who became the villain of the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. Every episode delves deep into Holmes' most devious crimes and depraved murders. So check it out. Get that new episode every week and be a part of American Hauntings by becoming a Patreon supporter and subscribing at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. And now, on with the show. It was in the fall of 1955 that the Age of Innocence came to an end in America, or at least in the city of Chicago. On October 18th, the bodies of three young boys were discovered lying on the side of a road in the city's northwest side. They had last been seen on the way downtown to catch a matinee performance of a Walt Disney nature film, and then they disappeared. The boys made the trip with their parents' consent because in those days, parents thought little of their responsible children going off on excursions by themselves. The boys had always proven dependable in the past and this time would have been no exception if tragedy hadn't occurred. The mother of one of the three boys, 14-year-old Bobby Peterson, had chosen the film for her son and his two friends. Anton and John Schusler, who were 13 and 11. She'd sent them on their way with $4 in loose change, which was more than enough money in 1955 to keep them occupied for an afternoon and safely get them back home again. What happened when the movie ended, though, is still shrouded in mystery. Two hours after the movie ended, around 6 p.m., the three boys were reportedly seen in the lobby of the Garland Building, at 111 North Wabash. There was no explanation for what they might have been doing there other than that Bobby's eye doctor had an office in the building. The office wasn't open on a Sunday afternoon, but Bobby's name did appear in the lobby registry for that day, so he was obviously there. But why? It seems an unusual place for three young boys, especially since the Garland had a reputation as a hangout for male hustlers and prostitutes. If that had anything to do with the boys being there, though, no one knows. Most likely, though, they stopped there to use the restroom, since Bobby knew there was one available on the ninth floor where his optometrist's office was located. They may have hurried up to the ninth floor and then went right back out again because they were only believed to be at the Garland for less than five minutes. The next time they were seen was around 7.45 p.m. when they entered the Monte Cristo bowling alley at 3226 West Montrose Avenue. The place was a neighborhood spot for dinner and recreation. Later, the owner recalled to the police that he remembered seeing the boys and that a 50-ish looking man was showing a, quote, abnormal interest in several younger boys who were bowling. He was unable to say if this man had any contact with the trio. About an hour after they arrived, they left the Monte Cristo and walked down Montrose to another bowling alley. 
but couldn't bowl there because the league was using all the available lanes for the evening. Now, undoubtedly out of money, but for some reason still not going home, the boys hitched a ride and were picked up at the intersection of Lawrence and Milwaukee Avenue. It was now 9.05 p.m., and their parents were beginning to get worried, and they had reason to be. The boys were never seen alive again. Two days later, the boys' naked and bound bodies were discovered in a shallow ditch just east of the Des Plaines River. A salesman who had stopped to eat his lunch at the Robinson Woods Forest Preserve spotted them and called the police. Coroner Walter McCarran later stated that the cause of death had been suffocation. They'd been choked to death. They'd been killed about 36 hours before they were found. He also declared the killings to be, quote, the most horrible sex crime in years. Bobby had been beaten and slashed on the head 14 times with a knife or an axe. He'd been strangled to death, likely with a rope. Anton and John had also been beaten and strangled, although they'd been choked to death by hand. All three had been raped, their eyes covered with adhesive tape, and had been thrown or dragged from a vehicle. Their clothing was never found. The city of Chicago was soon in a full-blown panic. Things like this didn't happen to children in the 1950s, officials insisted, not in their city. The fears of parents all over Chicagoland were summed up by the heartbroken words of Anton Schusler Sr., who told the press, When you get to the point that children cannot go to the movies in the afternoon and get home safely, something is wrong with this country. While the newspapers were ratcheting up the fear levels in the city, the police were trying to find the boy's killer. But there was a problem. Thanks to the location where the bodies were found, several communities claimed authority over the investigation. And so did the city of Chicago and the Cook County Sheriff's Department. There was little to no cooperation between the various agencies causing any clues that existed to be lost in the confusion. Eventually, the investigation would fumble along with Cook County Sheriff Joseph D. Lohman in charge. He became so desperate to solve the case that he even offered $2,500 of his own money for information leading to an arrest. He was way over his head with the baffling case and was under constant scrutiny by the newspapers who sensationalized the killings and by the public who was collectively terrified. Sheriff Lohman was all over the place with possible theories about the crime, all of which he announced to the press. He first suggested the killers had been boys around the same age as Bobby and the Schusler brothers. Then he surmised that the killer was a burly madman or that at least two powerful men had done it. He had no idea, but neither did anyone else. Police officers had searched the area, conducted door-to-door -door searches and interrogated neighbors. They also searched the Forest Preserve. More than 150 officers, joined by 50 soldiers from the nearby Army Anti-Aircraft Base, walked in lines spaced four or five feet apart, looking for anything out of place. Divers were sent into the Des Plaines River to look for clues, but found nothing. Detectives also conducted a massive roundup of the usual suspects. They locked up hundreds of sex offenders, especially those known to work in or frequent bowling alleys. They were convinced that this is where the boys had encountered the killer or killers. But the investigation led nowhere. It grew cold after a few weeks and then simply faded away. There is no statute of limitations for murder, so the case remained open, but there seemed to be little chance it would be solved. The murders became a cautionary tale in Chicago, painting a terrifying example of what happened when children talked to strangers. Then, 40 years later, long after everyone in the case had passed away, a bizarre turn of events led to the case finally being solved in 1994. A man named Kenneth Hansen, who was suspected in a number of sexual attacks on young boys, as well as other crimes, attempted to leave town only to be arrested on arson charges connected to a fire at a horse stable in 1972. Confused? <laughs> I can understand why. You see, I chose this story to lead into our unsolved disappearance for this episode because of its connection to the horse stables and the man who owned them, 
Kenneth Hansen turned out to be mixed into a situation that was so nasty that the man who owned these stables figured into not only the Schusler Peterson murders, but the three young women lost in this episode and our next episode too. In fact, if not for a government informant who was working with the police regarding the disappearance in the next episode, they never would have learned about Kenneth Hansen. I know, it's a bit of a mess, but stay with me here and I'll do what I can to clear it up. In 1955, Kenneth Hansen was 22 years old and he worked as a stable hand for a millionaire from Kane County, Illinois named Silas Jane. Jane was sort of the Al Capone of the horse breeding world, although some might say that wasn't fair to Capone. He was dangerous, reckless, and suspected of dozens of rackets that ended in violence. He'd also had many brushes with the law, starting when he was only 17 and was convicted of rape. Along with his brothers, Jane got into the horse business, shipping in horses from out west and saddle breaking them. The ones that showed promise were sold as a profit. The rest were sent to dog food factories. After he began making money, the Jane brothers bought a ranch near Woodstock, Illinois, about 40 miles north of Chicago. They bought several stables on the city's north side, and Jane began cultivating friendships among the wealthy show horse families in the region. He sold horses to dozens of them, often scamming them by switching the horses they chose with broken down old nags and then blackmailing them to put an end to any threatened legal action. In the 1970s and 80s, he began using investors and insurance policies to fill his bank accounts. He would purchase horses of dubious quality and then talk up the horses to would-be investors who would buy shares in the animals. Having sold shares worth, say, $50,000, he would then insure the practically useless animal for far more than its value. In the middle of the night, he'd electrocute the horse in a way that it looked like it had died of colic and it would be very difficult for a veterinarian to determine the true cause of death. Jane would do anything to protect his lucrative business, even if it meant killing his own half-brother. George Jane was just as devious as his brother was, and they initially went into illegal business together. They had a falling out, though, after George refused to go along with the plan to firebomb barns and stables that belonged to their competition. George went into business for himself, angering Silas by setting up his own stables and training facilities. His brother's success, as well as stealing some of his customers, sent Silas into a rage. Soon, George found sugar poured into his gas tanks, his tires were slashed, two of his horses died, and then his office was riddled with 28 bullets. Luckily, George wasn't there at the time. And then a young woman named Cheryl Rude, who had once worked for Silas, won a prestigious award riding one of George's horses. Silas exploded, calling up George and promising to kill him. It took a while, but Silas eventually made good on his threat. But before that, Cheryl Rude paid a heavy price. In June 1965, George gave Cheryl the keys to his Cadillac and asked her to run an errand. When Cheryl started the car, three sticks of dynamite wired to the ignition exploded, destroying the car and killing Cheryl. The bomb had clearly been meant for George and was clearly placed there by his brother, but the cops could never prove it, and Cheryl's murder, even today, remains technically unsolved. The end for George finally came on October 28, 1970. He and some of his family were in their basement rec room when a bullet from a 30 caliber hunting rifle crashed through a window and hit him in the chest. He was dead before he hit the floor. Silas was charged with arranging his murder and was sent to prison in 1973. He died of leukemia in 1987, escaping punishment for many crimes that could never be tied to him or were discovered after his death. But Jane wasn't connected to the deaths of the three boys. Well, not directly anyway. That was all Kenneth Hansen, who must have believed he'd gotten away with the murders until he received the news that the police were onto him in the summer of 1994. They picked him up because he'd burned down a competitor stable for Silas Jane in 1972. But what the cops really wanted was to make sure he was locked up as they put together their murder case. Investigators believe that Hansen had picked up Bobby, Anton, and John while they were hitchhiking on Milwaukee, south of Lawrence Avenue. 
Hansen lived nearby at the time in the 5000 block of North Claremont Avenue. He then drove the boys to Idlehour Stables on Higgins Road, which were owned by the Jane brothers. He worked there part-time and usually hung around there even when he wasn't working. Hansen's story, which the police learned from their informant, was that he wanted to show the boys some prize horses that were being kept at the stables. Once there, he tried to pay the boys to perform a sex act. When they refused, he became violent, raped, and then murdered the boys. He later bragged about this to the informant and to other people. After he killed them, he loaded up the bodies and dumped them at the forest preserve, where they were later found. In the spring of 1956, about six months after the murders, the Idlehour stables burned to the ground. Just one week earlier, the Cook County coroner announced to the press that he planned to exhume the bodies of the three boys in a search for trace evidence. Silas Jane, after seeing the newspaper report, became convinced that clues might connect the boys to his stables. And he may have had good reason to worry. Detectives had already visited the stables once. They were following up on reports of screams coming from nearby on the night the boys disappeared. Fearing that Hanson's crime would jeopardize his business, he torched the stables to hide any evidence that might remain. He pocketed the insurance money from the fire and detectives never connected the stable to the murders. This allowed Hansen to avoid arrest and prosecution for nearly 40 years. When Hansen's case came to trial, other victims came forward to testify against him, recalling promises of jobs made to them in return for sexual favors. Hansen forced the young men to stay silent with threats that included warnings that they might end up, quote, like the Peterson boy. Though the evidence against him mostly consisted of testimony from people who claimed he told them about killing the boys, and there was no physical evidence or eyewitness testimony to corroborate the prosecution's allegations against him, a Cook County jury convicted Kenneth Hansen of the murders in September 1995. They deliberated for less than two hours, and Hansen was sentenced to 200 years in prison. But the case was overturned in May 2000, when the Illinois Appellate Court found that the judge in the case made an error when he allowed evidence that showed that Hansen regularly picked up hitchhikers and sexually abused them. A new trial followed, but Hansen was convicted again and sentenced to another 200 years behind bars, which of course he would never serve. Hansen died in prison in September 2007, which was good riddance as far as I'm concerned. After what became 50 years, Bobby, Anton, and John would finally rest in peace. But the same can't be said for the three young women who also had connections to Silas and George Jane, who disappeared in the summer of 1966. The ending to their story is still untold. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to our latest season, Gone, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. America has a long history of strangeness and unexplainable happenings. Tragic events have occurred here and mysteries exist for which no rational explanation can be found. Those mysteries include unsolved disappearances, like the ones we are featuring this season. We've opened the files on people who have gone missing, vanished without a trace, and have never been seen again. Their stories are haunting, heartbreaking, and tragic. They're bizarre, unexpected, and sometimes seem impossible. But one thing we do know is that they did happen. These people walked out the door one day and never returned. Their stories have no conclusion. Their cases remain open. Their mysteries are unsolved. They are gone, but we aren't allowing them to be forgotten. This is episode 16 of the season, the first of two stories that are connected to an evil that preyed on the Chicago area in the mid 20th century. This is the story of young women lost, and it's one that may have you thinking twice about how you spend your end of the summer 
weekends. On a hot, sunny summer Saturday, three young women in bathing suits left all their belongings on a crowded beach and climbed aboard a motorboat on Lake Michigan. It was noon on July 2nd, 1966, at Indiana Dunes State Park, about an hour around the lake from Chicago. A couple whose beach blanket was next to where the young women had left their belongings watched as the motorboat glided away and then waited all day for them to return. They didn't know the girls, but thought it was odd that they would leave their purses unattended on a day when the park was packed with more than 9,000 holiday weekend sunbathers and swimmers. When the couple left at dusk, they pointed out the abandoned things to a park ranger. They told him the young women had left on a boat that was operated by a young man with a head full of dark curly hair. The ranger bundled up the belongings and stored them away. A day and a half later, on July 4th, Park Superintendent Bill Zitvik took a call from a Chicago man inquiring about his daughter, Patty Blau, who was 19. She hadn't been heard from since leaving home for Indiana Dunes with two friends on Saturday morning. Zitvik opened the blanket bundle that had been left on the beach and found Patty's wallet, keys, and clothing. He also found clothes and purses belonging to her friends, Renee Brule, 19, and Ann Miller, 21. Ann's 1955 Buick was still sitting in the beach parking lot. The superintendent assured Harold that his daughter would turn up. He saw this kind of thing all the time. She probably just had a little bit too much fun over the holiday weekend. But Patty didn't show up, and neither did her friends. Patty, Ann, and Renee have never been seen again. Divers scoured the lake and searchers on foot and horseback combed the sand dunes and woods of the park, which stretches along 45 miles of Lake Michigan coastline. But no sign of the young women was found. In fact, they remain missing decades later, and their fate remains one of the most enduring unsolved mysteries of the region. On the morning of July 2nd, Ann Miller left home in her four-door Buick and picked up her friend Patty Blau from her family's home in Westchester. The girls were looking for a way to beat the oppressive Chicago summer heat and decided to spend a Saturday at the beach. Eager to get the holiday weekend started, Ann arrived by 8 a.m. Patty had been watching for the familiar sight of her friend's car and ran out the door as soon as Ann pulled up. She yelled a quick goodbye to her mother. She'd already promised they'd be back early in the evening since their friend Renee was coming with them and needed to be back in time to make supper for her husband. Ann and Patty picked up Renee from her home on West Fulton Street on the city's west side and then stopped at a drugstore to pick up some suntan lotion. The women arrived at the Indiana Dunes State Park around 10 a.m. Ann found a parking space in the crowded lot and the beach was packed with people who were also enjoying the long weekend, but the girls didn't mind the crowd. They found a place to spread their blanket about a hundred yards back from the lake, picking a spot close to a few poplar trees that would provide a little shade from the relentless sun. Even though it was still early, the temperature had already climbed to 90 degrees and would keep climbing over the next few hours. The girls stripped down to their swimsuits and settled on their blanket, happy to just sit, relax, and soak up some rays for a while. Like the three young women, the nearby couple, who later reported the girls hadn't returned, were also from Chicago. Mike Yankalasa and Francis Cicero were teenagers who had also come to the crowded beach that morning and staked out a place in the sand that offered a little of the shade the girls had found. Around noon, they watched as the three nearby girls began to walk down to the water. Although they hadn't been paying much attention to them, they couldn't help but notice the three girls had left all their belongings, purses, wallets, a radio, and everything else they brought unattended on their beach blanket. They assumed the girls were just taking a quick dip to cool off and would be right back. Mike and Francis continued to lay on their slice of beach, idly watching groups of people sunbathing and swimming. It was common to see small boats pulling up close to the shoreline, almost all of them piloted by young men. They'd check out a group of pretty girls, maneuver in close, and try to get them to take a boat ride. It was always in good fun. Until it wasn't. 
The teenage couple watched in amusement as three young men pulled their boat close to where Anne, Patty, and Renee were standing in the water. They couldn't hear what was being said, but it was obvious the men were trying to entice them into their boat. The girls were unimpressed, though, and soon the men gave up and went in search of friendlier options. It wasn't long before a man in a smaller boat moved toward the three girls. He was steering a 14 to 16 foot long white boat with a blue interior and an outboard motor. Mike and Francis laughed. Their beach neighbors certainly seemed to be popular with the guys. But their chuckles turned to surprise as they watched the three girls climb into the man's boat. Once they settled into seats, the boat took off to the west and the couple lost sight of it. As the sun began to set, the crowd on the beach began to thin out. Groups of tired, sunburned people started trudging toward the parking lot, trying to remember where they left their cars. Mike and Francis gathered their things, ready to join the departing crowd, when they glanced over and saw the blanket left behind by the three girls. All their things were in the same spot where they'd left them hours before. Well, the couple flagged down a park ranger, Bud Connor, and told him about the three women who'd left in the boat around noon and still hadn't come back for their things. They didn't know the girls, but they described them and described the boat they'd been seen getting into. Bud had been a park ranger for years, and he was used to dealing with situations like this. He knew the women had probably decided to go on an afternoon picnic that turned into a moonlight cruise. He wasn't worried. He thanked Mike and Francis and told them he'd put everything in the park office so it'd be safe until the women came back. Picking up the blanket by its corners, he folded it up and took it to the park superintendent's office. It certainly wasn't the first time someone had left something behind on the beach. He expected they'd get a call from the women in the morning, pleased to know their things were safe. But the girls didn't leave just something on the beach. They left everything. Renee had abandoned a large beach towel, shorts, a blouse, cigarettes, suntan lotion, and her purse, which contained about $55. The other women also left clothing, purses, and personal items on that blanket in the sand. Well, Sunday was another busy day at the dunes. The holiday weekend was in full swing and the park rangers had their hands full dealing with the massive crowds. They didn't notice the Buick that was still sitting in the parking lot. Well, not at first, anyway. Monday was July 4th and the rangers that arrived that morning were expecting another busy and crowded day at the park. William Zitpick had just unlocked his office when he received a telephone call from a man who identified himself as Harold Blau. He was trying to locate his daughter. She'd gone to the park on Saturday morning with two friends and none of them had ever come home. The superintendent had forgotten about the belongings that Bud Connor had brought to the office on Saturday night, but as he was speaking to Harold, he saw the blanket was still there. A quick check found that the car keys in the bundle were to a 1955 Buick that was still sitting in the parking lot, exactly where Ann had left it on Saturday. The women who'd gotten out of it, though, were nowhere to be found. It wasn't even 9 a.m., and it was clear this would not be a routine day at the park. Suspecting he was dealing with something much more serious than forgotten clothes and keys, William called the Indiana State Police. Indiana State Trooper Harry Young was the first officer on the scene. When he called in the license plate number on the Buick, he discovered that a missing person report had already been filed on the owner and her two friends. When he arrived at the park, Sergeant Ed Burke, a state police detective, inventoried everything left behind by the three women, realizing that wherever they had gone, they were barefoot and only wearing swimming suits. With two days already lost, the state police and park service began contacting other agencies for help, including the U.S. Coast Guard. The search was in full swing by July 5th, three days after the girls had vanished. It became one of the most intensive searches the state of Indiana had ever seen. In addition to the beach and lake, there were many wooded areas and open fields in the park, and every section had to be searched. The media soon picked up the story of the three missing girls, and their pictures made the front pages of newspapers across the Midwest. While the publicity generated many tips, many of them conflicted with information that was already known or involved purported sightings of the women that the police couldn't confirm. One boater who was on the lake on Saturday told the police he'd seen three women in water up to their chins, causing some officers to wonder if they'd gone out too far and had drowned. 
but others, including Mike and Francis, hadn't seen them in the water any deeper than their waists. Besides that, the girls were all strong swimmers, and it was hard to imagine that three young women could have all drowned without the lifeguards on duty noticing anything. The authorities soon came to believe that the report from Mike and Francis about the three of them getting into a boat and not returning to the beach was the most accurate. Detectives got their first real break in the case when a man came forward who'd been making home movies on the beach on July 2nd. Although he didn't remember seeing the girls, he offered his films to them if they thought it might help with the search. And the films did help. They showed three women getting into a white boat that had a distinctive three-hole design. Although it was hard to make out faces in the film, the three women were wearing swimsuits that matched the descriptions of those worn by Anne, Renee, and Patty. The man in the boat also looked like the description given by Mike and Francis. The boat could be seen going west before disappearing from the frame. The search for the three women continued around the clock. It was extended to a six-mile stretch of beach west of the state park near Ogden Dunes later that week. An attorney and his wife were certain they'd seen the three girls on the beach there, walking around and eating. This was around 3 p.m. They'd been dropped off by a small boat, and then the man driving that boat returned later with a 26-foot cabin cruiser that had that man and two others on board. The three girls had gotten onto that larger boat, which was equipped with a radio antenna but did not have its name painted on the stern. This was the last sighting of the three young women, and while it was never confirmed, the authorities did consider it reliable. But if it was genuine... Who were those people and where had they taken Anne, Renee, and Patty? After a week of searching, officials were confident the women were not in the state park. Every inch of the area had been searched and there was no trace of them. They were also certain they hadn't drowned. The bodies would have surfaced by that point. As a last-ditch effort, a psychic that was brought into the case claimed to have a vision of a Lake Michigan cabin where the women's bodies were buried. An extensive search of the property, believed to be the place seen by the psychic, didn't uncover any evidence, though. This left two possibilities. Either the women had met with foul play after accepting a boat ride with an unknown person, or they'd staged their disappearance. The families insisted the young women wouldn't have voluntarily left their families, but the police weren't so sure. As the investigation shifted to the personal lives of the three women, some of the detectives grew more convinced they were dealing with three women who didn't want to be found. If the women had disappeared voluntarily, it would explain why they'd left their belongings on the beach. They wanted people to think they were dead. But perhaps the best argument against the women staging their own disappearance is the fact that none of them ever contacted anyone in their families. Adults do voluntarily go missing. It happens all the time, but it's very rare for them to never be heard from again. If the women felt that events going on in their lives that summer made it necessary for them to run away, it's reasonable to assume they would have reached out to their families once those issues were resolved. Again, their families were sure the girls would not have run away, but they also didn't know some of the things that were going on in the women's lives. Renee appeared to be happily married, but detectives made an interesting discovery when they were inventorying the items she'd left behind in her purse. They found a letter she'd written to her husband, Jeff. The couple had been married for just 15 months in July 1966, but in the letter, she asked for a divorce. She said she felt her husband spent too much time working on cars with his friends and didn't seem to have time for her. When questioned, though, Jeff told the police he wasn't aware of any problems in their marriage at the time of his wife's disappearance. And her family agreed with Jeff, telling investigators they believed Renee had written the note in a moment of anger and never gave it to Jeff because she'd changed her mind about the divorce. But there could have been something else that put the young women in danger. Renee and Patty had been classmates at Proviso West High School in Maywood, Illinois, and had been friends for years. They got to know Anne because she and Patty both boarded their horses at the Tricolor Stables in Palatine. The young women had bonded over their mutual love of horses, and the three often rode together. They also frequently got together after their rides at a tavern in nearby Hodgkins. 
Dick Wiley was a reporter and photographer who chased crime in Northwest Indiana for the Gary Post Tribune and Chicago Sun-Times during the 1950s and 60s. And he covered the disappearance of the three women extensively. He believed that the events that led to their disappearance began at that tavern. Both Patty and Ann were single, and Dick believed they got involved with married men they met at the tavern, and one of them, probably Ann, got pregnant. He based this on statements from some of Ann's friends who claimed she was three months pregnant in July 1966. She'd even mentioned to one of them that she might have to go to a home for unwed mothers and put the baby up for adoption. Now, was this the truth? We don't know. Abortion was illegal in Illinois in 1966. According to Dick Wiley, though, some Chicago women who found themselves in trouble were put in touch with a husband and wife team who performed illegal abortions on a houseboat on Lake Michigan. The couple, Helen and Frank Largo, had a nephew named Ralph who was supposed to pick up women in a small boat and shuttle them to a larger boat where the abortions were performed. He matched the description of the man last seen with the girls on the beach. Wiley believed that the women got to the larger boat, but something went wrong with the procedure and the other two were killed so that no witnesses would be left behind. The girls had left their belongings on the beach because they expected to be back in 90 minutes. Well, the theory has never been confirmed and the youngest Largo, Ralph, died in 2009, but it is plausible. However, unless a body turns up someday, it's likely it'll remain just one of them theories about what happened to the three girls. And there are other theories, the most prominent connected to the young women's love of horses. As mentioned, Anne, Patty, and Renee often rode at the Tricolor Stables, which was owned by George Jane, who was just as involved in criminal activities as his half-brother Silas was. It was at these stables where Cheryl Rood was killed by a car bomb in June 1965. There was no doubt George was a target, and he was sure that Silas had been behind the bombing. After the three women went missing, there were rumors that one or all three of the girls might have witnessed the car bomb being planted. If that was true, though, why would someone wait an entire year to ensure their silence? Well, maybe they didn't. A couple of months before the three girls vanished, Patty came home with an extremely bruised and swollen face. She told her family she'd had an accident horseback riding, but it was obvious to her friends that the injury had come from a fist, not a fall. When she was asked about it, she said she was having some trouble with what she called horse syndicate people, undoubtedly meeting one or both of the Jane brothers. She didn't elaborate, but if the trouble escalated, someone might have wanted to make sure that Patty and her friends never talked about what they knew. And while this is still a theory, there is a tangible connection between the Janes and the missing women. Both of their telephone numbers were found in the girls' belongings after they disappeared. Even if it was just the telephone numbers for the stables, it still makes things a little more ominous especially because the rumors of something between the missing women and the Janes lingered for years. Rumor has it that Silence Jane even told a deputy sheriff that he had three bodies buried beneath his residence, and this was after the 1966 disappearances. Investigators took his claim seriously and planned to search the property, but the deputy pursuing the lead was killed in a farming accident before the search took place. After that, the lead was dropped and never pursued again. Was the story false or had someone been scared off by the death of the deputy sheriff, causing the search to be put on the back burner and then dropped altogether? Well, that is a good question. A complete list of the crimes of Silas Jane will likely never be compiled, although we'll be digging into some more of them in our next episode. But what happened to those three women in 1966? We don't know. It's possible that neither a botched abortion nor the horse industry's criminal ties have anything to do with their disappearance. Although it would be a few more years before serial killers would capture the fascination of the country, such killers obviously existed. And perhaps those three women had the bad luck to encounter one. The man in the boat that day has never been positively identified. 
so we'll never know who we might have been. So many years have passed that it's possible there's no one left alive today who knows what happened to them. Unless their bodies are found or the killer decides to confess, the truth may never be known. Anne, Patty, and Renee are still listed as missing persons, although the authorities decided years ago that it's unlikely any of them are alive. The dust is still blown off the case file every once in a while, and there are still investigators who hope they'll one day learn what happened on that hot summer day in 1966 that turned a trip to the beach into one of America's most baffling disappearances. dive in if you're ready okay yes sir all right thanks for returning for more episodes of the american hauntings podcast where we discuss history hauntings legends lore and the dark side of american history this is season seven of the podcast which we call um um uh gone perfect I, I, sorry I, I tried to think something else but it's all right Put it wasn't spot. happening for me uh, if by now they should know. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they should know that I'm your co-host, yeah. Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, <laughs> author, historian, crime buff, and put on the spot, founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. No, not that. I'm really not. I really wasn't that much on the spot. It's just, I don't even think about it ahead of time. So. I mean, how many Here voices we are. can you do, I guess? How many times can you say the word a different way? I know. Um, I'm starting to run out of ideas. I didn't want to keep doing it the same way I've done it before, but, you know, oh, well. So, yeah, I mean, if we, I I, even I had even bring in, you know, in sync and the boys at one point, you know, know. To, to try something different. So, yeah, you get it. The season's called Gone. It's about disappeared people. Yes. That, what do you got? Yes. yes. Um. Anyway, man, how how's it going? How are you doing this weekend? Good, good. Um. You know, it is now September. So uh, that means it's Halloween me. season, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Something like that. So but, you know, uh, on that note. I mean, we've got tickets on sale for everything now. Decatur, Alton, Springfield, Chicago, all of our tours are on sale now. So, and feel, actually really filling up well, um, faster than I'm used to. I don't, I mean, I know Decatur is the 30th anniversary thing, but even Alton is filling up. So, and we've got the, you know, I've got the dinner events and the dinner and spirits tours that, that I do, the, you know, the dinner tours, and those are filling up too. Um, and you know, I'm kicking everything off um, the 15th and 16th of September. That's for me. So I think our uh, walking tour start that same night as well. Uh, it's nice. sad that off the top of my head, I don't remember, but I know that the 15th, I've got uh, Gangs of Southern Illinois and then I'm Spirits of Alton the next night. And so, um, yeah, so those are those are fun. I mean, they're a little different than what we normally do. And well, it, the, the, definitely the Spirits of Alton tour is different because that's that's the newest one. Mm -hmm. So that's the one that I do that's just in town. But it's not it's like what's well, kind of like our, you know, the extra podcasts that we've been doing. Yeah. So in other words, a nightmare. No, I'm kidding. Just joking. <laughs> um, it's just joking. We love doing three podcasts all the time. Oh, anyway, um, so. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but it is like it because it's uh, it's new stuff. You know, it's it's a little old, little new, a lot of new, you know, that kind of thing. So it's fun. Uh, so, yeah, yeah now I'm you, still kicking all that stuff off here pretty quick. You just and I know you just put out a couple of new books, you know, a few weeks ago, a month ago. But have yeah. you written another one yet? I just didn't no, know. I figured no, you might uh, have. already. I, I'm working on something, but uh, as always, because uh, it's, you know, yeah, I think I've explained this before. You got to decide what you want to pull the trigger on. You know, yeah. I got a, I got several things ready to go on this huge list of stuff and I got to decide what I'm going to pull the trigger on next. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I am working on something. So I can't know. wait. I, and I've been working on websites and that kind of stuff too, because I know this is looking way ahead, but I did put up the uh, Haunted America Conference prelim website. I saw that for next June. So it is up. I think a lot of people probably have seen that. So uh, we've got uh, not really much of our after hour stuff, but we do have our speakers and our after hour presenters up on the website. So 
Uh, I'll fill the rest of it in, in October, you know, as far as who's doing mm-hmm. what, what's happening when that kind of thing. So I couldn't believe yeah, it. it's coming up and yeah, I keep telling people you better put it on your calendar because it's June 20th through 23rd of 2024, a lot of 20s in there, but I'm working on that along with, you know, 15 other things all at the same time. Yeah. Including dead of winter, which is coming up pretty quick too. Um, or at least we start posting and we get everything posted usually mid part of September. Uh, I'll get up all the, the parts for that because we've got, it's going to do things a little bit different. I mean, I know we did last year with the VIP packages and stuff. Mm-hmm. We are going to keep those, uh, but we're going to do um, some extra things to go along with it too. Uh, something on Friday night and then something on Saturday. So Ooh. it'll be fun. Yeah. it's a, I mean, if people are coming to town anyway, you know, why not give mm-hmm. them a full weekend of, of at least something else to do too. Yeah. So we're working on that. And, um, and of course, then we'll have the free daytime thing on Saturday, like we always do uh, with the canned goods. And that's our big, um, that's our big, um, you know, collection, canned food collection thing. So yeah, I, I enjoy doing that. It's a lot of fun. So yeah, we get to break tables and stuff. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. does this, does this mean I need to get there Friday morning to set up the sound no. system this year? No. Is that- oh, no, 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 no. Um, it'll be, it'll be, that part will be the same. Got so. it. Yeah, we won't we won't be down in the you know the big ballroom. Uh, Got it. Immediately on, not until Friday night sometimes. So. All right, and yeah, yeah it'll and, be like usual then. And so. with the Haunted America Conference too, we'll have um, our second go around at Lewis and Clark, so we'll be able to yep. learn learn from last year, get some logistics yep. and things figured yep. out. We're and working on some stuff with that bigger too. and better. So yeah, I'm that's awesome on stuff with our workshops and all that stuff, trying to get it you know uh, uh, fix the moving parts. grease up the the movie parts so that they are not so creaky so there you go awesome yeah take some of that grease put it on your chair and um (laughs) no i don't i don't know i can't figure out what it is about this chair it's it's a new chair i can't figure out where the squeak is coming from so i break it in man i guess i I don't know it's not that new I mean, it should be broken in. So I don't know, whatever. Sorry. Only written 12 books so, here. I don't know. Uh, yeah. yeah I, I know. Yeah. I guess um, it gets used a lot, but still it shouldn't squeak like this. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you're good. Do you have any other um, events no. you talk about? No. Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah, I hope, I hope <laughs> no. you'll join us for those. It is um, all, uh, it's all on you now. So awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, let's dive into a listener review. This one is from Gangrel Girl, and it's titled Awesome Podcast. It says, I've been listening to your podcast the last couple of weeks at work. One of the first ones I listened to was Harriet Haskell. I am a descendant of William Clark. I love listening to everything. I'm still in the beginning, and I'm looking forward to the series about axe murders as well as the Haunted Woods and such series. Cool. So, yeah, cool. thank you so yeah. much for, for writing in and, and giving us a good review. Um, okay. So this starts out pretty bad. I know. I know. Well, I needed to... This is a complicated one. And to be able to cover all of the, you know, all of the possibilities with these three missing women who've never been found, I needed to, you know, I needed to delve into Silas Jane. Mm-hmm. And the best way to do that was to find the most horrific story that he's tied into, uh, which it is. And, you know, that kind of opens us up for not only this story, but the story that was the main gist of the episode and our next episode as well. Mm-hmm. So um, I know it's a horrible story, um, but it's it's one of those stories that's just it's so tied into all of these things in the 50s when, you know, these guys were really coming into their own with this, you know, the all the horse stuff and all the things that were going on. I mean, this guy, like I said, was like the Al Capone of horse trading. Right. So, you know, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a bad story. It's a horrible story. There's yeah. No question. What do you, what do you think? Like, uh, okay. I'm trying, I do this a lot where I make the naive decision to try to put myself in the shoes of someone that's completely insane. But I'm wondering, do, do you have to work up to three people at a time like, well, it was a crime of opportunity, um, as as would be discovered uh, during Hansen's trial. Mm-hmm. Um, there there were a lot of victims. Uh, yeah. He just didn't murder most of them, um, oh. or I, maybe not anymore. I don't think they ever pinned any other murders on him that I can remember. Uh, but there were definitely more people who came forward and talked about you know him pressuring them into things the same way Gacy did. You know, yeah, yeah. a lot of not everybody died. 
you know, not all Gacy's victims die for one reason or another. And I, as far as I know, these were the murders that Hanson committed and then had helped covering it up, mm -hmm. uh, which is what tied us into Silas Jane and, you know, his brother and all that and the, the horse stables and everything. But see, that was something that nobody even remotely considered back when this happened. Mm -hmm. You know, in 1955, nobody was looking for something like this. I mean, there was some suggestions that there was, you know, uh, there was all kinds of stuff, gangs and burly men and all this stuff that they were talking about. But, you know, nobody really thought that it would be tied into a bunch of other stuff. And then, you know, 50 or 40 years later, suddenly they, you know, they, an informant who's informing on to the cops about Silas Jane, he says, throws in a, hey, uh, you know, there, here's something you probably don't know. Uh, here's, the, you know, I can tell you who committed these three murders, you know, and so that's how the crime ended up being solved. And you have to, the, the other thing to remember about the story, and I didn't mention it in this, in our episode, but it happened not, well, about a year before the Grime sisters disappeared under really similar circumstances, but didn't have anything to do with Silas Jane or any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so, but these were two, two young you know, teenagers, young people disappearing at the same time, you know, within a year of each other. And, you know, stuff like that didn't happen in the 50s. I mean, it was just, you know, uh, you know, people didn't lock their doors and stuff, even in Chicago and things. I mean, it just was a different time. Wow. And suddenly all that kind of came to an end and nobody knew how bad it was until the 90s when all of this stuff started coming out about, you know, um, Silas Jane, and then you had Hanson who was connected to it. And, you know, our, our next episode, it was all tied into this. You know, that's what they were fishing for information for from this informant is our next episode. And they got this instead. So, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, you know, I won't dwell on the, the first story too much. Just know you already heard it, but it's yeah. fucking terrible and brutal. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's um, yeah, it, it, absolutely horrible. And I'm just, I'll just move on to the, uh, the, the young women lost. Uh, so let's jump to, uh, which is uh, also just as bad. I know, so, uh, you know, July quite, at well, least in detail wise, right. Detail wise, not as bad, still awful. So yes, terrible, absolutely. So. Uh, July 2nd, 1966, these three uh, women left their belongings on the beach and boarded a boat on Lake Mich Michigan. I've seen this being in Chicago and different things of, of people coming up on boats and partying and all that, uh -huh, trying to sure. get people, you know, sure. lured on. So but they denied one boat of three guys. But something this other one guy said got them onto the boat. And it, it could be depending on what you believe might have happened later. It could have been kind of pre-planned yeah. or it could have been something else. Um, yeah. You know, initially when I wrote this note down, I was like, why would they go with just this one guy? But then I started right. reading, you know, more. Right, right, right. Uh, when they don't come back, a couple of flags down, a park ranger says, hey, they left a lot of stuff on the beach. All their stuff. Yeah. And in fact, they did. Um, he eventually ends up taking it and storing it. Then Indiana State Trooper Harry Young's eventually called in. He's the first in the scene. Uh, some home video shows the three women getting in to a boat. What are what are. Uh, recording devices back then like what, what are we using then um i could even show you one but i don't i'm not i don't have it. it's another part of the building here yeah. but um home video cameras in the 60s were film i mean they were like eight millimeter film mm -hmm. you know like um i probably I, you didn't even have it in school oh i didn't um, but I've, I've seen it but not when school. i was in like elementary school we still had pre you know vhs tapes we still had, you know, big reels they'd send us, you know, to show movies on. And usually those were 16s, I think. But uh, there were eights. And most people had an eight millimeter camera, um, which was kind of, you know, novel for the 1960s. It's kind of like when, you know, the turn of the last century, when people started to have their own cameras, when mm -hmm. you started seeing snapshots. Now, before that, of course, there wasn't anything because you had to have move all this gear around with you and stuff. But then Kodak came up with the idea of, you know, here, here's your camera, you take all your pictures, then you send it to us, we'll take the film out, develop it, and we'll send it back. It was revolutionary. And yeah, yeah, the brownie was like, like changed the world as far as, you know, when it came to photography, at least for ordinary people. Yeah. And so, you know, when people started to have these eight millimeter cameras that you could use, that's where people like Steven Spielberg and people like that started making their own movies at home, you know, when they were kids, you know, 10 mm -hmm. year old kids making movies. Right, right. That's what they were using. And this, this guy was just out probably filming his family or his friends or something and making a little home movie, 
you know, to for them to go and watch later, save it, show it to grandma and grandpa or whatever. But anyway, he ended up with catching these girls coming in on on, you know, getting onto the boat and taking off. But, Mm -hmm. you know, they couldn't get any there weren't any I don't know. I'm not sure what the the uh, the laws were then. But I mean, now you have to have uh, a number on the side of your boat. It'll say Illinois or Indiana. Oh, sure. Never. And you've got a number on the side. I don't know what the law was at that time. Probably you didn't have to have that uh, because, you know, they talked about that cabin cruiser that didn't have its name on the back. And I believe that's a law now, but it didn't probably didn't used to be. Got it. Um, just to, to cl- clarify a little bit more, are we talking like the the sinister camera that the little kids have? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. There you something go. Something like yeah, that. Exactly. That's yeah, just like that. Yeah, that's Got that's it. a perfect example. Yeah, that's got that's, it. I didn't even think about that, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, because I mean, I still remember when my my dad got his first like video camera for like the family, and mm-hmm. I st- I have it now, but it uses these tapes that. Couldn't even tell you what they are right now. Um, I have to look it up. Oh, they and, used to. Yeah, they had some smaller ones. Yeah, um, but I don't yeah, even I know what those. I forget what those are called too. And I think I probably even had one, but it originally had a VHS. Recording, yeah, right, right, know? yeah. And then for years, like TV stations and stuff, always you still used Betamax. I mean, that uh-huh. hasn't been that long ago. Right. I think now everything's recorded on you know on hard drives, but not not ten years ago, people were still using Betamax tapes. Uh, but Betamax was always such a better quality than VHS. But, you know, it's America, so we always want the cheap one. And, you know, in Europe, they always use Betamax for years. But, uh, yeah, I, I used to have a uh, uh, a VHS camera, and they're like the size of a suitcase. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Would it balance it on your shoulder uh-huh. kind of thing, you know? Um, but, yeah, that's uh, – but, yeah, that's – I forget what the next ones were, but – yeah, I don't know that I can't remember, but I, I remember, remember him. Him. Finally... I'm sure there's somebody out there listening, like probably Renee, right? Mad because we can't remember what it's called. Well, I know he he was finally comfortable enough to let my friends and I take it to like film our little skateboard videos oh, and yeah, shit, yeah. you know, yeah. and all that. Well, there stuff. was a high eight. Maybe that's what it was. There maybe. was a little, and they were small tapes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was a little. I think, yeah, I think maybe five that's by what. like I think three or high eight. I think I'll have to look um, it up um, I, now that I think about it because I remember that Sony made one that I remember what a big deal it was when Sony had these cameras that you could use in the dark. Oh, and then so of course you know every ghost show then suddenly was green and they still are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but every every ghost show on TV turned out you know everything was green because it was zero lux cameras you know. And all this stuff. And, uh, but I think those were high eights, if I remember right. So, you're probably, I don't right. know. It doesn't make any difference. No, it it makes matter. no difference to this story, but <laughs> we're just random. I'm just learning. <laughs> um, so they almost, the police almost get to look under a certain property for bodies, but it doesn't work out. Yeah. yeah they don't uh, find or, anything, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and sorry. They I called in a psychic, and yes, the psychic yeah. said that they were buried underneath this property and, uh, you know, you know that usually turns out about that way unless it's a unless it's a movie and it's you know with you gotta be (laughs) desperate the the comic characters of ed lorraine warren then of course you know it's it's right there right but it's not normally and the cops think initially it's like three women who just don't want to be found yeah uh which that seems like a pretty elaborate scheme yeah it really does but you know and i i get it I, you know, I understand it. These guys, you know, these guys see the worst in human nature. So they're automatic. And I get it. I totally yeah, understand. Yeah, they're getting lied to. They're going to, yeah, they're constantly being lied to and stuff. So they're they're going to look at what seems to be the most obvious to them. And what they see the most is people lying to them all the time and trying to pull stuff on them. So that's immediately what they're thinking. Plus, I mean, they're finding things that are suspicious, mm-hmm. you know, or at least finding something that, you know, this girl's talking about a divorce and, you know, all this stuff. And then this other guy, you know, who'd been a reporter and went on to become a cop and then, you know, and stuff, he, you know, he came up with the pretty convincing story about the abortion thing that was Mm -hmm. going on. So, I mean, that's interesting in itself. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that seems, you know, I I don't know any of these women or anything, but okay, swim out. Somebody comes on the boat, like, nope, you're not the right one. We're supposed to be meeting somebody particular. Yeah. Yeah. Get up, do their thing. It gets botched and they don't want, you know, Mm -hmm. they don't want witnesses. Yeah. Cause it's still another six or seven years before like, you know, probably even more than that before they, it became an open thing with, you know, Roe v. Wade and all that stuff. So, right. I mean, we're still talking years away from that. So, right, right. 
Um, you know, or it could have been at the Tricolor Stables owned by George Jane. Um, they might have witnessed a car bombing that kind of not went right. wrong, but hit the wrong target. I guess it hit the wrong say. target. Yeah, it was supposed to get George and got Cheryl instead, yes. just a young girl who worked for him. And, you know, the theory was is that they might have seen something, you know, which I suppose is possible. Um, it just I, I kind of agree with a, a little skepticism there that why would you wait a year? Mm-hmm. to shut people up and they're saying oh well maybe it didn't because somebody beat up you know one of the girls and it's right like, right Patty. i know but still i mean still mm. <laughs> it's still yeah. a year neither know? of them are great um and no I, but the fact that they are mixed into this story though mm-hmm. is ominous considering yeah. all the other things that were going on with them so it, se- it seems like these guys pro- probably had something to do with it but we just maybe don't know how yeah necessarily. Well, you know i when i i thought of it i thought i wondered if they had anything to do with any kind of connections to the abortion people or who knows you know what i mean i mean underworld stuff who knows right right um yeah and like i said yeah didn't get to look under the properties for the body and it just kind of just that's we don't have much unless you're going to no. talk about more next episode or is that just yeah. the end of this? No, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get back to, uh, we won't get so much back to Ann and Patty and Renee, but we'll definitely get back to all the connections with all of this stuff in the next episode. So mm-hmm. yeah, this is sort of, um, you know, a, 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 an inadvertent two-parter as it right, turned right, out. Right. It didn't, I, it didn't, I didn't plan it that way, but as it turned out, it really is because yeah. it's, you know, a couple of bad characters are connected. Things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, same area, same, a lot of the same people all mixed up in the stories. Uh, Well, on that happy note, um, (laughs) I want to give a quick shout out to our new uh, subscribers on Patreon. So thank you so much for supporting the show to Jennifer, Tyler, Michael, Jeanne, Philip, Lori, Tricia, Douglas, Wendy, Susan, Heather, Peyton, Catherine, Briley, Kristen, Sarah, Amy, Shannon, Shari, Patricia, Kristen, Jess, and Jim. Yeah, we're glad to have you guys on board. Uh, I think people uh, are hopefully, I mean, at least that's what they tell me, are enjoying the uh, the other ep- the other show we do. Yeah, the, uh, the right now the Dead Men Do Tell Tales podcast is doing sinister. The story of H.H. H. Holmes, as you've already heard at the beginning of this. So uh, people seem to be liking it, and uh, I'm working on the next one as we speak. So uh anyway the next one uh will continue on with the theme of our last one so or at least with the story so i can't wait yeah i mean i could wait you want to take a little break and be fine but no i can't wait (laughs) Um, it it is now time for our ghost rider segment so if you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre please email us at uh, american hauntings podcast at gmail.com this uh one is from darius and it's just titled y'all got me freaked out (laughs) (laughs) and it says gentlemen i have a bone to pick with you you're too good at your jobs i drive across the u.s for work transporting people's pets for them and i just began binging your podcast from episode one i'm starting season three now on more than one occasion those stories gotten in my head and made it hard to sleep i car (laughs) camp almost exclusively on public land so it's just me and my thoughts oh my god just wait till he gets to this season about disappearances jesus i just i just oh oh, i don't want to tell you i don't want to tell you in front of everybody what sure. i watched last night because it'll give away what our halloween episode is going to be you're right about. okay so we'll, we'll i don't want to tell you anything but yeah don't yeah oh god well hopefully anyway. he has hopefully he has another couple like weeks of peace before he hears this yeah, um, yeah. but uh, or hears you know everything else but but seriously he says but seriously i love the podcast and your transparency towards the stories and the facts behind them keep it up guys it's something special best regards Awesome. Thank you so much. And yes, yeah, sorry. We're, it's just going to get worse for you if you keep listening. Yeah, so I suggest, yeah, first he's gonna, not, you know, he's, he's car camping on public lands. I mean, you know, I, I hate to even make jokes about this, but the time he gets up to this season, he may be gone. Who knows? He may be, gonna be so long yeah, yeah. An episode of the podcast. I'm just kidding. Cause but, he'll be like, he'll be like new Orleans. I'm fine. Hollywood. I'm <laughs> fine. Right. I'm not and going there. Gone? And then he's going to get to the one about the farms and fields. And yes, he's in the middle of nowhere. And then he's going to get to the missing people. And I, yeah, I don't, I, I'm, I'm feeling bad. I know. Him. Especially cause he's, he's trapped. He's transporting people's pets. Some sort of such a noble, a good thing. Yeah. And, yeah. And, ugh, so yeah, maybe put on yeah. kind of a cool job though. If you like, no, it's, if you like road trips, man, hell, awesome. yeah, absolutely. So, I'm going to yeah. guess he's younger than I am. Cause I would have really have liked that back in the day. Now I'd go, Oh my God. No. So <laughs> no, thank you. Oh man. Well, it seems like they're enjoying their job. Um, so <laughs> 
I hope everything stays safe. And you know what? Maybe you learn what to avoid from the podcast. Be like, okay, wait, I've heard a lot of similarities with this episode, this one, this one. So here's what I'm not going to do and yeah. not going to sleep over there. I yeah. Don't and if I see a truck pass me on a country road with a license plate, this is something about beating you on it. Don't mm -hmm. yeah, just keep going. Right. Don't stop at the little church down the road. Just keep driving. Yeah. Justin Long walks into your yeah, just purview. Keep going. So uh, that's all I got, man. All right. Well, uh, let's see. The only other thing I would say, we've talked about Patreon already. So don't forget to use the uh, discount code podcast when you're shopping for books or tours or events or whatever at AmericanHauntings.net. Uh, you can also use it on Cody's shirt store, which is AmericanHauntingsClothing.com. The code is very complicated. So listen very closely. The code is podcast. That's it. I, That's all I, you have to put in when you're when you're checking out. And you get 10% off anything you order. So there you go. I do uh, want to like say giving I, stuff away. I know people forgot that or whatever, but like sometimes Troy, I'll go to the gas station and people be like, what well, I'd even they're like, how old are you? And I'm like, fuck, how old? <laughs> uh, so I get it. I get it. You know, or like I forgot the word for fork one time years ago. Like it just stuff happens. So, oh, no, no. Yeah. Well, just, just wait. It'll happen more and more. So. Oh, cannot, cannot wait. Well, wow. Well, I still have some brain cells left. Uh, this episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy Taylor. It's produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Tell your friends, neighbors, and random people on the street about it. And follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere that you listen to your favorite podcasts. See the website at American Hauntings Podcast. I see. Oh, yeah. yeah. AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for more info about the show, notes, photos, links, and more. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and anywhere else that you waste hours every day. Did you look at the pictures I sent you for this episode? I have, no, I saw them pop in the inbox. I haven't okay. checked them out. Okay. Are they brutal? Well, one of them is. Oh, great. <laughs> it's it's so, a newspaper story, but it's yeah. still, I was, I'm shocked by it. So, anyway, oh, well, we're going to talk about some newspaper stuff in our next Alton episode, too, <laughs> by the way, but I can't wait. By, uh, but yeah, maybe look at our pictures, maybe don't, but we promise we're probably much more entertaining um, than whatever else you're doing. <laughs> what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. So, thanks so. for listening. Uh, we couldn't and definitely wouldn't do it without you. So, until next time, goodbye. So long. See you later. See you later. Oh, I can't wait to see those pictures. Not really. Oh, yeah, it's just one. Yeah.